but hey, yeah, Brett, it's good to see you, man. Like we we're saying, um, it's been uh, when when did you say August of twenty two was yeah. when uh, we talked to him yeah. last. So yeah, yeah, good to see you again, man. So good to see you again. Um, like any relationship that happens through a PR agency, I'm just curious. Do you remember being on the show? Oh yeah, I mean, I feel like I remember. Um, yeah, I mean, I, people who like to talk about movies and movies that I'm involved in or movies that I like, I, I have a pretty, uh, strong memory for that. Do you guys remember? (laughs) You were, you were affectionately known in this house as Billy Brent. Uh, you will always be Billy Brent to us. And so, uh, that's how it goes. We're we're always excited to talk to you, man. Uh, and it's not really like a shot. from from the end of me, like me and Clark, we've been doing this for so long, and it it's always so weird how unformal the PR gauntlet that they put you guys on, and it's like it's not like we're vetted, you know what I mean? We could be anybody, but if we had a little bit of traction online, they're gonna send you our way. So I'm always curious, like I don't know. We always make the joke about how it's got to be a hell on your end, and then you know when when you end up coming back to our show our job turns into like, all we want to do is make sure you have a good time. So no, I mean, I mean, you're right. Like, um, cause sometimes it's these 10 little or 10 minute, you know, bursts of, of yeah. interviews, yeah. which are, you know, that's pretty quick. And, um, and then sometimes I'm kind of going, Oh yeah. Wow. Like that seemed not extremely professional, probably like, I don't know who that was. I hear what you mean, but, um, with you guys, it's different. I mean, it's like, and, and, and it's like a longer conversation or whatever. And, um, and you don't have to, and, but, but the, like I said, that's what I said before. It's like, I don't, um, it doesn't work for me necessarily to, uh, talk about like movies I'm working on and stuff. I mean, it's, yeah. it's exciting and fun. And my, you know, sometimes my publicist, um, if like we do like 10 in a row, he'll be like, okay, that's it. That's all. all right. We're done now. Like, you know, like, like, oh, thank God that's over. But this is yeah. the other way around. Like, I mean, I, you know, this is to make a movie in a vacuum is no fun or to make movies in general in a vacuum is no fun. So yeah, like talking with you guys is certainly no, it doesn't feel like work to me. None of it does. <laughs> I mean, that's our fear is that it's like, oh, fuck, I got to talk to these dudes. Well, I mean, yeah, we might be guys like that. I don't know. I'm not one of them. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. No, it's not like we had that. We certainly didn't have that experience last week. I I think that's what he's getting to when we talked to Richard Elfman for 45 minutes and he just stared at us with all his 97 teeth and scared us to death. See, I mean, yeah, it's like, and I think (laughs) about that sometimes of like, yeah, answering with yes or no answers or or I don't know. I mean, I mean, I look at your backgrounds, you guys, and it's like, and you know, in my place is, is all the same all around and everything. And, uh, it's like, yeah, you know, we're doing this cause we love it. So hundred percent. And, that, I, and that's why we like, you know, it's not a chore. Like I said, for me, that's why we like talking to guys like you. And also, uh, if I remember correctly from last time we talked to you, Brent, uh, you're a big Kentucky guy. Um, yeah. so I, I wanted to bring this and now Russell, oh I wanted God. to educate okay. you on this as well. I had to bring this up because I'm, I, you know, my college is uh, Southern Miss and we're actually going to be going to Brent's, uh, you know, in Lexington at the university of Kentucky to open up next season in football because it was a four team swap. Russell, we were supposed to go to Ohio state, but then they kicked us off with Akron. And so now we're going to Kentucky. So I'm thinking I may go uh, to Lexington next year <laughs> and uh, and watch Kentucky get 1-0 and uh, starting their football season next year. I think you'll fit in. Where are you guys right now? Uh, we're, we're in uh, San Francisco. Yeah. We're in the Bay Area. Yeah. And where are you from? I'm from Mississippi. Yeah. Where are you from? Yeah, I'm, I'm from a couple miles away. Yeah, so, he's, yeah, I've never left. Yeah. Russ is the, not a football um, guy. And I will tell you this, by the way, it's like I, I just got back from New York like 90 minutes ago. So, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm here for all the right reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I've, I've heard nothing but uh, good things about uh, Lexington. And uh... yeah, it's um, it's it gotten a lot more. I don't know if progressive is the word, but um, 
less backwards. Eh, that's not probably the right phrase. <laughs> yeah. But it's great. I mean, it's like my whole family's, you know, my grandmother went to the same high school I went to. And um, so we're like multi-generational Lexingtonians. And it's, yeah. it'll be a fun place to go for certainly for like a football game. And the great thing about Kentucky football is you never know, like they certainly might lose like they're not it's not a sure thing well, well you, you had a decent year this year seven and five you know that's it's a little disappointing but everybody, uh, you know. everybody thought we were going to be like this was the year we were going to be 11 and one and everybody yeah. broke it down for me and they'll say it every year almost but this was different yeah <laughs> we're always seven and five we're always six and six seven and five um you know basketball's you know feeling good this year so that's fun but well, you know that's that's where that's that's the that's a breadwinner. You know, it's a basketball. Is gonna do, it should do the heavy lifting over there. For of sure. the entire state, it's the breadwinner. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, hey, and also, I, I, we, we will, we absolutely share what I am assuming is mutual hatred for the uh, the University of Louisville. Oh yeah, and oh. it's you know, um, we had a great win against them in, in football, which was kind of exciting. But uh, great, we won seven games. That's what it was. But basketball is just, um, it's absolutely become a joke for them. I feel so bad. Like they, <laughs> they were so bad last year and they've lost already, you know, more. It's just crazy. Um, I, and it's, you know, it's Kenny Payne, who was a assistant um, basketball coach yeah. at University of Kentucky. So he's, we love that guy. Um, but I guess he's just not a great head coach. Yeah. But, uh, and even, you know, football wise, they're great. I mean, you know, but those guys make like seven, nine million dollars a year to coach these mediocre, like, program. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, man, there must be a lot of money coming in if you can be seven and five and make that much money. <laughs> well, you know, I, the best way for me to kind of put this in perspective of like how college athletics is changing is for there are 500 CEOs for Fortune 500 companies. Uh-huh. There are only 133 Division One football coaches, and there are only 16 now for the SEC. So it's like, you know, for those jobs, it is ultra, ultra, ultra competitive. And so, you know, you're going to, you know, $9 million a year <laughs> sounds great, but you're probably going to have that job for a few years. So it's, you know, that's how it goes. And you got like guys like Jimbo Fisher who get, they got $77 million to not coach anymore. <laughs> you know, that's just where we are. It's like overlook sports podcast. That's right. <laughs> Anytime. If I see a window to talk football, I'm going to take it, Brett. I'm just going to take it. Russell doesn't Don't, give me anything. We have to call him Billy Brent. It's what, how we refer <laughs> to him all the time in this house. That's right. And this is why we love you. I, I don't know. There's there's normally a hurdle whenever we talk to people through a PR. And it's like me and Clark always talk about it. But it's like halfway through the hour, they'll like click. And they'll be like, oh, okay, these guys get it. And it's either we have to bring out, like, we have to relate their film to, like, Hitchcock or find an, a through road, like, football. But then they're like, okay, I get it. Like, we, we can play here. Yeah. And I just love it when you can do it right off the top. Like, <laughs> which was the problem with Elfman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I couldn't talk football with Elfman. And Elfman. <laughs> Although he did like to mention boxing a lot. Yeah. Which I kind of felt like was a threat. But that's... Yeah, that was <laughs> <laughs> so billy okay you know uh oh, you going straight to billy. About billy Brent real quick because yeah. the, the topic is um somebody forwarded me so the movie i did separation which brian cox was in and you know and it was a it was a crazy shoot he showed up you know um he was bouncing back and forth between uh west coast east coast and you know but he was he was great and um all these years later, he did one of those uh, kind of like karaoke car drive episodes where what they're doing um, is guessing movies that he had been in based on the tagline. Oh, um, yeah. And I forgot, the guy who's in it um, is an incredible British actor, and I can't think of his name right now. And so he goes, um, something like, don't let it in or whatever. And he's like, No. And they're driving and he's like, separation. And Brian Cox is like, no. He goes, no, that's the movie. Like, that's the movie you were in. Oh, uh, yeah, I have no memory of it. And then 
and, and there was a bunch of them, you know, and they didn't remember a lot of things. And the director gets on the, like the PA on the driving in a car and he was like, and this is a really, uh, I think it's funny. I mean, you could say it's almost kind of embarrassing, but whatever. And, um, and he was like, Brian, that was a separation that you did in like 2021. Uh, William Brent Bell was the director. And he was like, yeah, I don't know what that is. I don't know who that is. And then, and, and you know, what's his name was laughing. He goes, oh, yeah, right. Billy Brent. Billy Brent Bell. He's like, I don't know. <laughs> he had no memory of it. But he called me Billy Brent Bell. So, Oh, he listens to the show. That's right. That's, why. That's what it is. That was my takeaway. Yeah. Um, probably like, one of our old, long-time listeners. Well, God, you know, um, the thing, I've been thinking about your career a lot. And I feel weird saying that out loud now. <laughs> And I don't but, quite believe it, but I hear what you maybe. No, no, I do. Because you know what? Like, uh, dude, last time we had you on, I think it really changed the way me and Clark looked at like, like really, as far as directors go, I feel like you have the toughest job because you're making broad films while still trying to like wrangle the genre. Because I know you're doing it. The boy should have never been that good. And it was fantastic. Yeah. Like we still talk about that fucking, we still relate things to that movie. And I just, I think about like the, the fight you must put up. Well, one with uh, the new movie, Lord of Misrule. I, I read the PR note, which I normally never do. And in it, they were talking about how you got attached. And it, it seemed like somebody had sent you the script. Yep. And then I think they quote you in there as saying, this is good. Like, period. Like, that, that was your response. And I, it just made me imagine you. Clearly, you're like in a mansion. It's like rural. I, uh, you have a lot of like sports memorabilia up and then you, I just imagined you in like a Terry Gilliam set with a ton of like scripts everywhere because you're kind of like, you're, you're like a warrior for hire and you're the one that will bring the creation to life. And I'm just like, what, how many scripts do you get? Like how many come to you every day? Um, I mean, not that many. I mean, it, because it's, I have a lot, of, like a lot of people who filter, you know, what's coming. So they can't, you know, I, I'm not going to yeah. read tons of stuff. And um, so let's say I get one a week, really, probably, um, because I'm usually developing a lot of other stuff. And some could be from original ideas. Some could be projects from a while back. So I can't just read every single script. Just think, you know, because, and, uh, but I probably like, you know, for every 10 scripts that get sent, I read one of them. And for every, you know, 10 of those, my reps who sent it to me, like, are pretty careful about sending me stuff. And then reading that one out of 10 is kind of like, it's those cliches, but they're true in a way of when you read a certain amount of a script. And if, you know, I, I, I've read enough to know if I'm into something or completely not into maybe to the writer's style or his voice, his or hers voice, or, you know, maybe just the subject matter or the tone. And, um, but then sometimes, and the boy was this way because the boy was the first script I ever did that I didn't like write. And, um, and, and I was like a solo entity and without like my writing and producing partner, Matt Peterman, who I just saw in New York. And, um, and then something like Lord of Misrule was, yeah, like the, my producing partner on that, who was looking at a lot of scripts, because, you know, reading things takes forever and forever. you really want to yeah. enjoy it and for it to mean something after the fact. And um, and he was like, you need to read this, you know, like, and he would never have said that if it wasn't important. So I was like, all right, I'll stop. Doesn't mean I would have read past like 10 pages, but I was like, okay, I'm going to read it you know, because he feels that confident about it. And then within those, you know, 10 pages, I definitely was like, oh, okay, I see the, va I see that this, I was hooked, I guess is what you say, right? And yeah. for so many reasons. And um, so that's a long way of saying, I don't know, I get about one a week. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, but they, you know, they're vetted by the time they get to you. And if you rate it, then, you know, obviously, you know, we're headed in a territory to where it's it's getting closer and closer to that process. If you know, if it's that much of a f sort of filtering system, yeah, that, I'm, things are going through. I'm curious, what kind of instruction do your filters have? Like, are you like, I'm not doing a haunted house, like anything zombie? Don't even bother me. Yeah, like, are you looking for things? Or are you just looking for a good a good story? Is that your it main depends. prerogative? The thing, that, 
here's what I'll say about scripts being sent to me is um, if the usually if they're good at all, that's so rare because like I feel like in the horror genre, especially um, or maybe exclusively, like if it's any good, well, that writer should be making the movie. Like that's yeah. what I. Think. Yep. So then to have a script get through the system to me and that person not find a way to make that movie is kind of rare. Um, so what was it? You, what was the question you kind of said though? Like the, oh, the people who are, system. yeah, or whatever. Like what instruction do you give them? Well, it's different. Like um, with the boy, it was interesting because literally I had signed with new agents at the time as ICM. And, and so it was like, okay, I either want to do like a science fiction kind of horror, which was different from what I had done, or I want to do something really spooky kind of haunted house vibe. And then that was the directive. And, you know, and I had a meeting. And so the boy was clearly kind of the haunted house vibe. And so I was like, okay, great. That was like one of the two things, you know, and, you know, like mid-level studio kind of vibe. Like that was kind of what we were looking for. So we're looking for those two things. And like a movie I'm doing next year is going to be that sci-fi vibe that, you know, um, I've always been looking out for with scripts being submitted to me, like range, my management company, CAA, who's the agency. If they just send me stuff and like three in a row are just dog shit, you know, then I'm just going to be like, quit. Like, I'm not going to read them. So then yeah. so they have to be careful. So sometimes it is specific of going, I'm kind of looking, these are the spaces that like are exciting me right now. Um, and then a lot of times they're like, oh, this is a great spec script, or this is coming from this great writer or this really great producer. And, you know, maybe they uh, like something I've done. And so it's like, but they can only do that so many times if they don't, they don't hold up as scripts. And if they're just all kind of crappy, you know, then, then I'm going to stop reading and, um, and they want me to keep, you know, to read or whatever. So that's kind of the way it works. And, uh, even if they're good, sometimes like really good scripts, but just not the kind of scratch I want to itch script, yeah, yeah. you know, and like, Oh, this is really dark. Uh, you know, a, a doctor in Zimbabwe who is like babies are do- coming out as demons. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm not in the mood. You know, that's just a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not the guy. <laughs> you know, well, like, how, yeah. how much uh, creative power do you have over the script? Like, if you like it and you're like, I want to lose the whole third act, but I love the first two. Can you enter in a dialogue like that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, either either when I come on to a project or not come on, but if I've read it and I go, OK, well, here's what I think. Like, I don't like this whole half of it, but I like this half and I would do something completely different. Um, you know, they can, they can be like, yeah, no, we're married. We're really in love with a certain aspect of this script, but usually it's not that way. Usually they are, they, you know, yeah. Are certainly open to those conversations. And, but to some degree, yeah. Like I'm not gonna, um, I'm not gonna spend all the time and effort and heart to try to create something that, I, you know, don't like, I might, you know, not hit the mark of what I'm trying to do, but, but I'm, but I'm not going to like, there's never a situation where, you know, a studio or a producer is like, yeah, you can't change that, you know, (laughs) because everything changes. I mean, on this script, um, there was a huge rewrite that I kind of did or not huge, but it was big enough before this, the, the, um, we had the cast read through, which I have recorded kind of like, you know, like this. And, um, and it's everybody for the first time meeting, it was all zoom cause we were at the end of COVID and, um, and I knew some people better than others, like Ralph Feinson, you know, it's like, so then seeing his, hearing his voice actually, you know, read the part was like, ah, oh, that's what I was waiting for. Yeah. And, um, but they got the script like at three 30 in the morning and they're like, is it so, you know, which I had just sent to everybody at three 30 in the morning. We were reading it at 9 AM. So nobody, had, so they were like, this is a lot of different stuff here, you know? Um, and for me, I was like, it's a fluid document, you know, it's like everything can change. Um, and I think that if you don't leave yourself open to try to change things a lot, as long as, you know, you're staying honest to the core of what it's supposed to be. Yeah. That's where all the best stuff always happens is when you kind of let go of the script a bit. 
So when you got Lord of Misrule, what 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 really stood stood out for you in the script? Was it sort of the you know, foreign sort of folklorian aspect to it that you were kind of like, okay, this is this could be something new and interesting for me. It's yeah, with with Lord of Misrule, it was like I had I'm always fascinated with masks and puppets and dolls and 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 on the flip side, always kind of a very a relatable core human story. And those two things were like screaming at me, you know, in the first like five pages. And then if you know the movie at all, it's like, in, you know, in that oh, basically the opening scene, the little girl almost kills her pet bunny rabbit and then doesn't. As we're introducing her mother, who is the town vicar, the, you know, the reverend. And I was like, all right, this is a great promise for what can happen. Like if in the first five pages, this is already what's happening, all these great masks, all this tone and this mood, and then this horrific potential thing that happened with this little kid and this very interesting mother um, character. It's There was a lot all very quickly for me that I was like excited about. Um, and then those things just, you know, took off as the script continued. So yeah, that's, that's the kind of I, stuff I had a, um, I had like an inkling that maybe the like, cause I kind of got the mask and doll connection too, but I didn't know if that's just because I like the boys so much, but then I started thinking about like, I, like I mentioned thinking about your filmography and kind of the way you've navigated through so many different, um, sub genres of horror. Do you think you have like, I don't know. It's not really. Because again, you are like a production trench warrior. I feel like your magic is that you're able to operate a big crew and navigate a bunch of people giving you notes to make a movie that is going to go out wide, which is not a thing that most people with a good script who are just going to make a horror movie can do. Like you have a unique skill set. And I'm just like, I wonder if in all of that collaboration on both ends, if you ever struggle to find like your your auteur voice or like what is what's a Billy Brent, a, a Billy Brent movie got like because you know you think James Wan and he's the hallmarks like, he's, he's got the fucking puppet thing right like it's always little dolls and stuff so like do you ever think about that like is enough of your voice coming out through these movies I think that on one hand I look at movies kind of as a movie goer and we all like so many types of movies and so many times when you think you know the voice of a filmmaker, because how many films can somebody really make over the course of a career? You know, not that many. It's, you know, they have to, they get pigeonholed uh, type, you know, in a certain way. And and so for me, it's, I've kind of stopped trying to define like myself in that respect. You'd probably be surprised um, at how much, well, I don't know if the word is control, but I have over the script and everything that happens and the edit. I mean, I'm usually editing the movies, whether I get a credit or not. You know, I'm rewriting or writing on the movies, whether I take a credit or not. And I'm producing. Sometimes I don't get a credit, but I'm definitely producing the movies. I'm doing the budgets for the movies. I'm doing the schedules for the movie. Like, like I love every aspect of filmmaking. And, and so then it's like, Probably just two sides. I mean, I love certain science fiction fiction aspects that are never going to come out in a boy movie. Yeah. But I love that kind of gothic magic realism. And maybe magic realism is the through line. Steven Schneider, when I first met him, who's a producer I've worked with a lot, who did Insidious and all the new, he's done the last five James Wan, James Wan, or not James Wan, but M. Night Shyamalan movies. Yeah. And he did... Paranormal Activity movies. He did Devil Inside. He's you know he's a master of horror <laughs> and the most pro, one of the most prolific horror f- producers in the world. And um, and I had so many different types of movie when we f- first met. And he kind of what he saw was the through line of kind of the character types um, and the magical realism. And so you can look at magical realism in science fiction and in a haunted doll and in a strange orphan murderer. Like for me, it's kind of really high concepts boiled down in a way that maybe you can believe could happen. So that's probably what my type of movie is. Whether the tone has a little more humor, like uh, Orphan did, Orphan First Kill, 
which I loved that. And that was so fun for me. Um, But you can't just snap your finger and have another project that has that kind of strange, dark humor that, you know, to mine. Um, Or if it's something, like I said, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think the type, like when you say James Wan, I can picture a more clear through line. Even my manager, when I first started working with her about um, a year year ago, she was like, I know all your movies. I didn't know you made them. You know, she was like, yeah. I didn't know you made all these movies because like James Wan, it's like James Wan presents or there's like, I, and I didn't go, I didn't spend a lot of time and effort um, branding myself in that respect. So it's funny. I mean, I'll talk to people all the time who kind of like, if you say you're going through my filmography or something, recognizing movies, but not knowing I made them. Yeah. And pretty much every movie that, that I've done, almost every one of them is an independent film that became um, a studio movie, you know, like stay alive was yeah. completely an independent $2 million movie that turned bloomed into a $10 million movie. And we piled on all these huge producers and then Disney, but that was after we were done with it. Devil inside. We were done with it. We made it ourselves. Paramount came on, you know, the boy, we made that without a studio. And then STX came on later. It had nothing to do with it. Orphan first kill. We made that outside. We had no distributor when we made it. And then did Paramount bought it after the fact. So pretty much every movie is, is that, you know, none of them are actually like front door studio movies that I'm being hired to do. Even my manager at the time thought I was hired to do direct devil inside. And it's like, no, me and my buddy, like did that whole movie in the dining room of my apartment on a laptop <laughs> recording ADR and dialogue on my iPhone, you know, yeah. with the actors, like it's, you know, um, we never expected to release that movie in a wide way. Well, it's kind of an, it's incredible. And I, I just want to like kind of lampshade that for a minute because it's almost like you're totally, I, and I imagine so many people probably look at your filmography and you're like, holy shit, it was the same director. But I, I feel like to most people that would almost be like a tragic trait. Like, Oh, he doesn't get the spotlight that you would want. But it's almost like you're like completely selfless and you attaching to the project elevates it in a broad way. But it's also project after project after project yeah. after project. I know it's Billy really, it's working, baby. No, and no, I mean, I think it's like commendable. And I think that's why in my head, I imagined you being buried under scripts because you're getting a lot of people who don't really have a strong product, but they're like, this motherfucker can turn it into gold because you're an alchemist. And it's like, maybe, maybe you won't get the recognition of like, oh, here comes a puppet on a tricycle. That's Billy Brent, you know, but (laughs) it's also, that's like your strength is that all these movies that have made it wide that, you know, it's because of you. I don't know. It's really interesting. There's no substitute for hard work. No. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's really interesting. And as a fan, I was overlooking your stuff and I'm like, what, what is the, what's the auteur theory here? And, you know, in application with Truffaut, that was not a thing that people in the studio system in old Hollywood ever even imagined. But he was looking at their filmography saying, oh, this guy, you know, he's got a particular set of morals that always comes through in here. And that's like his fingerprint. So I'm like, even though Billy is a master of kind of this uh, cooperative medium. Brent is his name. I, so. <laughs> I, know, I don't know. I, I keep doing Billy it. It's Billy Brent. And uh, I'm just. Sorry, I get very excited on this show. And then I start, uh, I open up my mind and all these weird musings I've had about your filmography, all the hard work you've done. And yet I'm sitting here trying to connect these dots like a, like I have a yarn cork board up on my wall. There but, is yeah, a, I, there's a connection of dots. I mean, because like the first three movies I did, I did with Matt Peterman and Matt and I wrote together and we wrote tons of other things that never got made but got bought or studios or TV shows. I think we sold five TV series and um, huge studio scripts. And, but with none of them were getting made. And so that led us to making stay alive. And, um, and it's like, you know, when you do a movie uh, it can be like a Brent Bell film or a Billy Brent Bell film, you know, (laughs) and that's a, that's a DGA thing. And I was in the, in that kind of affords you that, but, at the same time, we were trying to build a brand, Matt and I, 
Bell Peterman. And so the negotiating was like, well, we're not going to give you guys a Bell Peterman thing, but Brent, you can get your name on top because of the DGA. So then I negotiated, well, take my name off, give, make it a Bell Peterman film. And they go, okay, we'll do that. Like one or the other, but you can't do both. So those movies, and then that became prototype. And that became, so Devil Inside and Where were both prototype film. And then Matt kind of is not a Hollywood guy at all, kind of, and was like, I'm out of here. And he bought a farm in Woodstock and took off. And so then that's when I did The Boy. And it was the first time I did a movie that I wasn't working with, like, all my core best friends. And and it was like kind of more of a pro- professional kind of uh I got a job and I'm like, okay, I'm doing this movie for this mid-major kind of company. And this is a little different. And then I'm starting over as far as this branding goes, you know? So in a way it's just bad business. It's just me making choices for like maybe selfless choices at times. I should have, you know, I could have had a producer credit on or last orphan movie, but I wanted somebody else to, to be involved and so the negotiation was give him that credit and I won't take one. All those things over time and over the course of many movies, like, you know, a lot of guys like Eli Roth, those guys are really ridiculously smart about their branding very early. And I just didn't care about that. <laughs> and, and so it's like, don't get me wrong, though. It's like it's, I do want people to see, you know, the tricycle with the d- doll and, and think yeah. it's me. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if that'll ever happen. But I'm aware of it more than I was years ago. Or I'm, you know, definitely, like I said, it, it's 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 a weird thing um, how to kind of negotiate that and navigate that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like we're talking now. We talked last year. Talked a lot. Of, and just you know, making movies and trying to make get better and better with every movie. Hopefully, eventually, you know will lead to some sort of, I don't know what you want to call it, name recognition or something like that. Um, but I'm always looking at movies like in an iconic way, you know, whether it be Brahms or The Mask, like behind me. But mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's always fun to try to create elements in a movie that could be iconic. And you never know, right? Like, is it going to become Jason Voorhees or not? Um, and th- I'm cl- I've been close, you know, um, and we, and, and we keep pushing for those things, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's complicated. <laughs> so that mask, when, when we were watching the film immediately to me, it read like punch the clown. And I don't know if that was any element in there, but it, that felt very like the boy to me. So I was kind of, I was seeing it there. Yeah. Well, um, you know, Lord of Misrule is a real mythology and many times that character it is kind of a punch and judy kind of yeah it's, you know it's uh in the script he had a hook nose but it was a mask like more like a normal mask um and and so for us it was or for me it was trying to try to create with the costume designer and everybody like something that was different you know as far as what that looks like and feels like um but yeah i mean it's once again, that's what that movie, there's a, that was another thing I loved about the script very early on. And you kind of mentioned it, um, it was like pretty quickly, I was like buying into this mythology that was a bit foreign to me being an American, but I had a connection to it in the UK. People are very familiar with these types of festivals and stuff. And they're very dark, you know, here in America, it's kind of like you got, you know, um, Mardi Gras or something. That's about yeah. it. It's kind of every year something that weird and interesting. And so, um, but at the same time, it was it was foreign to me and, and bizarre, but I could understand, it was easy to understand, which I thought was like Tom DeVille, like as a writer, like, well, wow, that's okay, really yeah. hard to do. Like this feels really unique and complex, but it also is really, I, I get it. Um, so, same thing with the mask, you know, everything about it was, was kind of like, I didn't want to steer so far away from the reality of what the history of these types of festivals are. Just try to kind of do the best version of it, you know, in my mind. And that 
you know, came, that was, you know, had to do with costumes, the symbology, the art direction, the mask, everything, you know, trying to do stuff um, so that it's not so different, but at the same time feels unique. Yeah. Can, is there a name for the weapon that the Lord used? Is that sickle? something you made up? Is it just a sickle? I don't know. It's it like a traditional sickle. I don't know. I, there aren't they normally like just Sans single hammer? hand. Like that was like a like a grand. Like I was actually kind of curious oh, yeah. at how it would be like employed. Like I thought you would like try and like decapitate somebody. But I think in the movie, I remember the the tip went through a skull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah, it was kind of there was a that scene. There's a version of it where that was a decapitation, but that weapon is not really heavy enough to maybe lop off a head. Now that's a lot of logic. Logic is dull. (laughs) But, and so it was kind of like coming up with like, what's the best way to utilize that as a weapon when it also feels just like a sickle that's supposed to be used for wheat or whatever, you know, for the harvest. Um, Yeah, we had a, yeah, we had this crazy um, weapons guy build it. and it was huge, a lot bigger than I expected it to be at first. Like, you know, it was like he showed up with this massive, um, I, I get, yeah, I think we call it a sickle. Yeah, it's kind of what you want to call it. But again, now y'all talked about football and basketball. I can talk about <laughs> D&D. And, you know, in, in the rule books, you'll notice that yeah. you can, it's almost like when a, you watch a movie and you, the auteur theory is coming through yeah. and you can just tell what they were really into. When you play Dungeons & Dragons in the old editions, they'll have like sword, longsword, broadsword. And okay, we'll move on. You get to polearm and you're just like, why are there 20 different listings for a polearm? So I thought that either you had created a new one or maybe discovered a, a like a brand new one. We and didn't it, discover it was, really- we created it. It was, it was a combination of a lot of variations on that kind of a, I mean, you know, it can be used as a weapon, but it's not a weapon. Um, but it was, it was once again, trying to create something a bit different. Like he's yeah. fashioned his own version of a sickle, but it's a little more wicked and a little more um, violent, you know? Um, so yeah, it was just kind of its own thing, but a whole process to get there. No, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Sorry, I felt like I cut you off right there. Well, I was just want to ask, um, so Brent, like what kind of research did you do kind of like looking into the mythology of, of the story of, you know, Lord of Misrule, it, you know, cause like, like you said, coming in from the American perspective is like, we don't have a ton to, you know, compare to sort of the, you know, the festivities and everything that were taking place with this sort of pagan ritual. However, you know, there are certain aspects that, you know, are easily, you know, transferable no matter where you are. And especially I think with America, it's easy for us to grasp on to like groupthink and also just sort of, um, yeah, that's the big one. Uh, yeah, (laughs) just sort of, yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. So like, you know, did you, did you really sort of dive into that sort of, you know, ancient, uh, you know, British mythology? Yeah, I mean, um, Tom DeVille, the writer, obviously did. And so, so much of it was there, you know, like, so then, and everybody involved in the movies from the UK, except basically for me and some of the the guys in post, you know, the composer, um, the guy, the editor, um, sound, post sound, but everybody else, you know, we were all, it was all UK. And those people have everybody, cast and crew, they have stories growing up of the village they're from that what their festival is like. And so there was so much in the script and it was really cool. And I didn't really need to, I mean, I researched just some things for fun just to kind of see where he got the stories from or like where they derived from. But it wasn't until really that we were in the UK and I was collaborating with the makeup artist or the, costumer or the location people or the actual locations themselves and the people that live there to where then it started really kind of coming to life because everybody had, and they also, I mean, they have these great connections to this kind of mythology and these kind of festivals and stuff, but to them, they're just like, eh, you know, and I'm like, what do you mean? Like, this is crazy. And, um, there was, a. you know, there was, you know, it was supposed to be set in the summer. There wasn't fi- much fire, as much fire involved, things like that. Um, it wasn't 
an autumn festival. It was a summer festival. And, but to me, like I was really drawn to the autumnal kind of festival vibe. And to me, I, I think that part of the reason, I mean, who knows exactly. And we've talked about it before me and the producers, but you know, being an American coming in and being so kind of like enamored with the architecture and the mythology and the costumes and all that stuff, I think is kind of hopefully what comes through in the movie is like my excitement about all that stuff. Whereas had they probably brought on a, a, a British director, he might've, you know, yeah, like that stuff isn't as interesting to him because he's grown up around it or whatever. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, what was the thing with the mythology? Um, like at the festival itself, there were a lot of dancers and like weird costumes and sticks and shit. Um, <laughs> Strong start. <laughs> those are all like, you know, once we start developing the festival and talking about background artists and everything, it's like, oh, let's just hire actual groups of people that do that yeah. in festivals. Yep. So those are just real people that do that every weekend as, you know, they're like civil war reenactors or something. And, um, so it's just, you know, it's all there. It's not make-believe. It's like, there was so much authenticity just from, from the world of it. And then, yeah, doing research for costume and, and mask and everything. It goes back to like Roman times, you know, like the Lord of Misrule, but the Calogog stuff, you can't even really like do a Google search for that word. You know, it's so biz different. Um, he did an incredible job creating this like Gallogog mythology for the town. Yeah. Okay. So that is fictional. Totally fictional. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm Tobias Braun. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't even, so is the Lord of Misrule like a holiday now in the UK? Well, it is, he was outlawed, not like, like by King Louis the Fourteenth at one point. Um, so Lord of Misrule started like in Roman times or something, and it's basically like the town votes like a town idiot to be king for a week, and he gets to do, and he would normally be a moron with you know, and it's like, and then they would execute him after a week. So he, so it's kind of a you know, it was a badge <laughs> of honor to become the Lord of Misrule, but you knew it was your one week to go crazy, and then you were dead. And, um, and then that, that ver there are variations of Lord of Misrule that's just continued on. And usually it's, um, it's more like that. It's more like you get to be mayor for the week and they do the festivals, the Feast of Fools, and everybody's drunk all week. And in our version, it was a little different. Like he was the hero of the town, sort of. And he kind of uh, chases the demon out instead of inviting him in, she says in the movie. And, um, but then the Galagog, like what it is, their, their pagan god that they're, freaked out by and they um may or may not believe in that's totally made up um and love the name by the way i just i want to throw that out there again many years playing DD, you hear a lot of really fucking dumb names yeah. that you think this could be a fantasy name but you'll cringe galagog is great well g's good g's a good letter for that and also you know uh it's also how you end it too yeah so i think yeah it's it's good you hit you get enough Mix with uh, vowels and consonants. Yeah, and the consonants yeah. are doing the heavy lifting there. It is so a little bit it, like a math you know, equation. God-like, but there's yeah. not God. Gallo. I mean, you know, they're good freaky words. Um, and then you know, just the whole the mythology about you know them taking this black barn that comes and goes. Like that's you. You can find that kind of mythology throughout folk horror in a way. The kind of a black barn that comes and goes. Yeah, I like uh, the black. I'll sacrifice. Yeah, we all. That's no big deal. Right. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, and had we made like the original version of the script, you know, it would have been another hour longer of just more mythology. And because yeah. it was, he, he really like created a world that we didn't get to fully realize. I mean, but not in a bad way. I mean, I think the movie has tons of mythology as it is. You know what? That might be your thing, though, when I think about it, because, you know, 
your films, when you go back and look at them, I feel like you are a good like audience whisperer and you know what a horror genre like fan will pick up on. And you're like, we don't need all that. Like, let's just get down to the core and they'll get it. And then we can move on. Like my, my struggle here with this movie was I imagined you reading the script and thinking, how do we separate this film from uh, the wicker man? Right. Because in America, if we don't know anything about Lord of Misrule, that's going to be our like aesthetic that we yeah. like. It's like, a, yeah, it's, it's like a, we're it's doing a comparative that. pace of like, yeah. Yeah. And then you talk about the mystical realism and it's like, well, that's the one thing that's kind of a bummer about the wicker man is you're like, yeah. there's there's like Lord Summer Isle is it. Yeah. 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 Like they don't really deliver on anything else. They don't have a fucking yeah. black barn. They like they got dude. bees. Yeah, they have bees. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. Was that a concern for you at all? I'm sorry. Um, no, not a concern. I mean, like, well, here's the weird thing with me and Wicker Man is um, I love that. I, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, the original. Like, I have one of those weird memories as a kid of seeing it, you know, on television or something, because um, obviously it's a pretty old movie. But then I have a horrible memory of seeing the remake and I went and saw it in theaters and, you know, and I don't like trashing people's movies or whatever, but it, it was one of those, one of those movies that like, just, I was like, oh, wow. Like, this is really bums me out. So as soon as I read this and I, you know, I think even the producer said it's Wicker Man meets, you know, um, Oh, I don't know. What's that one movie about uh, a kidnapping? But anyway, something about a kidnapping. And um, so I kind of knew that, I don't know if they knew The Wicker Man that well, but I know Tom probably did, the writer, Tom DeVille. And so I made it a point to never go back to those movies because I more had a bad taste in my mouth about the remake. And, and I've never been one to, and so the only thing that was, probably the bigger thing that was on my mind and it wasn't like in a purely studied kind of way. I mean, I think this happened when I first read the script. And of course, it took us several years to make until we made the movie. But I wanted to make sure there weren't comparisons to Midsommar, you know, like because it was all because it was set in the summer. Probably I read the script around that same time that that the year that movie came out. So I more wanted to make sure we took a left where that movie took a right. And um, oh, wait. My power cord popped out. I wonder if this has been fucking you guys up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we're no, good. We're good. It's funny too, because you mentioned Midsommar and one of my favorite letterbox reviews of your film that I've read so far was if a 24 would have put this movie out, y'all would be fucking shouting about it for 10 years. And I'm like, yeah. it is interesting how branding can do that because as far as a 24 has gone, Midsommar is one of the, the misses for me. Like I had fun with it there and I'm like, oh, it's kind of cute. And then it's I'm like, one of their bigger hits. I know. And they have the fucking three hour cut that I own, by the way, because I'm <laughs> that kind of fucking materialist. But Did you, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Well, I mean, it was interesting because like Hereditary, I absolutely love Hereditary. I mean, I wouldn't yeah. make a movie like that depressing. Like it's so, you know, suicidal, <laughs> right? Like you're just yeah. like the world's ending. <clears throat> I'm choking. Hold on. No, you're good. But so, you know, you're going to like get the support of your studio, you know, if you're coming off a big hit. And and so he got a great amount of support for a movie like that, that typically wouldn't, you know, like if Pearl would have been pushed, you know, as much as they push Midsommar, it would have been a much bigger, you know, hit. I mean, it was it's a super like we all love yeah, that movie. Still, or yeah. it's a super well-received movie. Yeah. But it's like. It's just you don't you never know how you're going to get the support of your studio or what that studio is going to do. I mean, Orphan First Kill for me was like there was a point where we didn't know if Paramount would release it at all or just dump it to streaming completely or if it'd be a wide release. And they had to make those decisions based on COVID at the time. But by the time the movie was ready to be released, they couldn't change those decisions. And that's when they realized like, oh, this should have been much wider release. So with a movie like Midsommar, it's like, I mean, there's nobody like A24. So yeah. if you get the support of them truly and they are going to, because, you know, like with Lord of Misrule, I can't just snap my fingers and have people know it exists. That's purely marketing. 
like, you know, like money. And, and if a studio for whatever reason is like, well, we're going to, this is how we are releasing this movie. And this is the money we're spending. Well, no matter how good or bad that movie is, it's like, you're not going to get enough eyeballs on it. You know? So something like Midsommar, it got everybody's eyes. Cause it was like, this is this guy's next movie. Yeah. And I think a lot of people were kind of, you know, like, Oh, what a beautifully uh, designed movie. And also, you know, quite, you want to kill yourself in a way, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, it's like he got to do what he wanted to do. And, and that's a beautiful thing if you get the right studio to allow you to do that. So whether or not the three of us like, or love that movie, um, he got to do his movie and have it sit pushed out to where everybody gets to see it and, and give their opinion. Um, and it's just not always that way. So yeah, I, you know what you mean? Like, yeah, Lord of Miss, Miss Rule. If you push something down everybody's throats, well then therefore, I mean, when I go see them, and I mean that in a good way, then people are forced to look at it. Yeah. And when I see the movie with an audience, I'm just, it's so great because, you know, everybody locks into this, like hum of this movie. And, but I'm like, you know, that's not going to happen to 99% of the people who ever see the movie because they may see it on their TV and they may have to pause it or go to like, you know, it's just a different thing. And, um, but being able to see a movie and, and it's the same thing with a 24 where they release it wide enough and give us enough awareness to where, all right, we're all going to check it out, you know, and, um, and hopefully even check it out in a way that's cinematic and then you get the best experience. And um, so, I don't know. I want to I wanna jump in here and talk about casting real quick. Yes. Um, and, you know, I I, I kind of look at actors as sort of instruments. <laughs> and if you, if you look at actors as instruments, then you have to look as a director as the maestro. Yeah. Because he's got it. You've got to conduct it. And. You know, and it's a big, big part of the movie is is casting and if it, things work. And um, you've got Ralph Ineson in here, and he is certainly an instrument. And yeah. I think that when used correctly, um, he just elevates everything around him because that voice, man, that voice has a presence and it has a command that just requires attention. Yeah. And and I think that how he was used here and ultimately, you know, with the fate of his character, everything was perfect. So was he was he always going to be involved in the project? Because it just seemed like a perfect marriage. Well, no, definitely not. Well, no, definitely not as Jocelyn. Um, and, you know, the crazy thing about his voice, because, yeah, you, you could be a trailer movie guy and have a, a trailer, you know, voice doesn't mean yeah. you're a great actor. And so <laughs> on screen, he believes it. And also it's not, he doesn't put it on at all. So like he was in town a couple months ago and we we're having dinner and somebody at dinner was like, I knew his voice sounded like that in movies. I didn't realize just when he's sitting there talking about his blokes at the bar that yeah. it always sounds like that because it's so, so it feels like an instrument. And I agree with you. I don't know what you mean by instrument, but with him, it is, special because it's it's actually him as an actor um so i don't know if but we haven't talked about it so i'll assume you guys don't know this story um but the script was written when i first got it you know four or five years ago i don't know when that was um jocelyn was a woman you know she's a seven 68 year old woman who is is the kind of she's that character exactly kind of the weird mayor of the town you know and, um, and, you know, it took a while until we got to that point of like making the movie and really getting serious about casting. And I am been friends with Ralph and I've worked with him before and I love Ralph and I knew I wanted him to be involved in the movie. Um, and we were casting the female lead and, and when we cast Tup, you know, Tuppence agreed to do the movie and I love her. It didn't really feel like, anyway, there wasn't a role for him that was so incredible because he couldn't play the husband and his other small roles. And so I was going to go meet him for a drink down at his local pub in, in like around Wimbledon. And, um, and he had read the script. The only reason he was even available was because he fell off a horse 
doing Willow and broke his shoulder. So he's like, I can't work right now. Um, But I'm like, and so we were struggling to try to cast the role of Jocelyn, you know, you know, this kind of witchy woman. And this wasn't feeling right. And so the night before I went to go see him, I was with my producing partner in London. And I was like, what do you think if I asked Ralph to play Jocelyn? And he was like, fuck, that's fucking perfect. (laughs) Or that's crazy. You know, I was like, okay, maybe that's what I'll do. And so I didn't say anything to Ralph. I, you know, went down there. We hung out and we spoke about the script in general. And, and then we got serious about it. And he goes, well, I could play the green man, I think, which he had just come off the green night. And I thought, well, that's a pretty cool cameo. Uh, that's, and that's the guy at the beginning of the festival who just announces the festival. So it's like one day shoot, it's cameo. Um, and I was like, well, what, what about if you played Jocelyn, you know, which is this woman that this old, that gets naked and, and he, He's like, oh, that's okay. That's interesting. And then we just got to talking about it and fell in love with the idea. And we were already, you know, we were a month out from shooting producers, you know, cast crew, everybody knew that this character was a huge part of the movie and it was a woman. And, and so he's like, called me the next morning. He goes, yeah, I want to do it. And, and we have to think of another name. It was like, yeah, let's think of a name. And then we both texted each other and we're like, fuck it. We love this name. You know, Jocelyn, <laughs> the name. And so the writer, um, he's like, look, I love Ralph. He's amazing as an actor. He goes, but I got to rewrite this whole character now. And I was like, no, don't change anything. Like, don't change a word. And the only thing we really changed was how he's introduced when he takes his clothes off. Because in the original script, it's like a gown. And she just lets the gown fall and wanders out to her backyard. And because it was this different character, we kind of created a guy who wear, who's like a school teacher who has no family and what happened to his wife, we don't know. And he lives in this house and has this, you know, he wears these nice kind of suits, but they haven't been cleaned and they haven't been tailored in a long time. And he doesn't clean under his fingernails. And so he's weird and creepy. And so then he changed how he undressed in the, in the first scene. But Looking back, you know, I can't imagine the movie any other way than with him as this character. But in, and everybody, the producers, the wardrobe, everyone. And I first thing is I called Tuppence and I was like, hey, look, what do you think if Ralph, you know, plays Jocelyn? And she's like, if he wants to, if he's game, fuck yeah, that's awesome. And everybody like, you know was open to that. So when you talk about change in the script or anything, it's like, that was a huge change to the entire movie four weeks before shooting it after developing it for four or five years. And, you know, every, we all just loved it. It was a perfect, yeah, it was a perfect marriage with everything and it just worked totally. And then obviously, you know, not to, uh, to go into a third act spoiler territory, but I think that just, um, sort of the comparison of, of of that character, which was originally written as a woman, and then you take, you know, Ralph Innocent's, you know, just character and physicalization in with him, mixed in with a female vicar. It's like we're we're dealing with a lot of depth here. And then also of how everything just kind of came together at the end was just perfect. I so it was it was, it was a, a risk that definitely paid off for sure. I um was thinking the same thing right now, trying to imagine him like Jocelyn as a female. I really like the male approach because it gives you a different depth, especially when we're dealing with the trope of like kind of a lame dad in horror movies. Yeah. You know how like paranormal activity, everybody fucking hated Micah. And so he's like, <laughs> what's up with the dad, dude? Like, why don't they believe? Why don't like, and it's I like, pro Micah, baby. nobody is Micah, dude. I, man, I love that. And in my head, I was thinking if I was an actor attached to a movie and then a month out, they bring him in. I almost could imagine getting cold feet because you're right. He, he is like such a presence that it, I could see it easily turn into like a black hole situation where sure. like all the attention gets sucked. And then you're like, fuck, I got to do something. This guy chews up the room talking about his buddies at a bar. Like, yeah. yeah. So were the actors cool? Like, did anybody go like, dude, you're going to fuck up my career bringing him in? <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying is like it, Tuppence 
Middleton, the who was the, who had been we had already signed on as the lead, like, um, and she's really like has a real strong kind of connection to horror and dark stories and witchy stuff. And she was great like, when she would go like she her thing that she was practicing at home and like between shooting and she was learning how to be a taxidermist um, because she, her cat was getting old and she was like, I know I want, I want to stuff the cat when she dies. So I want to learn how to do it. And so she has this great darkness to her. That's very authentic in the horror space where some actors are just like, Oh, I don't watch these movies and okay, I'll do it. I'm an actor. She really is kind of that. So if she would have said, dude, you're fucking up the movie. Like, <laughs> these are completely, this is completely a different thing here. Um, but she com- immediately responded. And that was the thing. He's so unique in that respect to where if you know him, if you understand his work at all, um, and then you kind of think about it, you know, it, and especially because it was written as a female character, it really injects this almost subtle femininity to him that is almost never existent. You know, he's such a masculine character in most projects he does. So it's like to be able to kind of play around with that, you know, through him and let him interpret it the way he did it. um, It was, you know, that was just a cool part of the, one of the coolest things I've ever been involved in, in a movie where everybody saw the value in it and said, yeah, no, let's take that chance. It was, you know, like in the boy, he didn't have a mask. And when that idea came up, when you're into post-production and some, you know, Roy Lee was like, you ever think of putting a mask on him? And it was like, nobody had ever thought of that, you know? And it was like, they were, they were smart enough to go, all right, this is going to cost a lot of money, but this is going to make the movie better. So, you know, it's so almost rare to find kind of studios and producers who, you know, we'll let the filmmaker or whatever, let the movie, like put the movie first and go, well, what's better for the movie? Not just what's cheaper or more obvious. It's like, no, that's going to cost more money or it's going to be a little different like with Ralph, but it's, you know, it's, he's, you know, he's a unique talent and it, it made, it, it was another thing for me that made the movie, you know, trying to do certain things that were different. Yeah, I, honestly, I think it's your strength too. I I could imagine a lot of like avant-garde filmmakers who get like a production behind them or some money and then people being kind of like, I don't know if we really want to give him the reins. But I feel like just through your career, it's like, I don't know. I think he's got the movie first in mind. Like we're not going to ruin your branding. We're not going to do any of that. Like, oh, in an Eli Roth film, we need sharks or some shit. Like, <laughs> like with you, it seems like you're always going to be movie first. So yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and depends on what it is, uh, the situation, but like, you know, with Orphan, you know, making sure that Orphan First Kill, you know, making sure that um, Isabel came back for that role, you know, there was, um, n- pe- some people kind of thought as an idea it would be cool, but they never saw it happening. And most people were like, no way, like, that's not going to ever happen. And the only reason I think really we were able to push it through was because COVID allowed us time to do tests and then kind of people were like oh okay well maybe and for me you know it's like that movie is kind of same thing I mean it's like I could never see the movie I with a little kid it would have been a cool movie maybe but it wouldn't have been the orphan first killer we did so I don't know yeah those are for me probably some of the funnest things is is just allowing the producers and everybody to know that yes, if there's some idea I want to do, that's kind of crazy or left field, it's like, because we're trying to do things that stand out and feel different and feel fresh to me, you know, that I think an audience will respond to. I mean, that's a bit pragmatic, but um, (laughs) how dare you? (laughs) I'm not thinking about it like with a math equation or something, but, um, but you know, it's, it's, that's what I meant. You know, it's like, it's like I said, reading a script is, is like, this is cool. I don't like any of this part. And if you guys like are cool with me changing all this, then I really love it. And if not, then, you know, find somebody else. That's cool. Um, you know, (laughs) dude, I can't believe you just got off a flight and jumped in here and spent the time with us. I'm, I'm always amazed at how kind and humble you are. 
And I, I want to reassure you that you're making movies that people may not know you made, but <laughs> they will eventually. And they're going to look back and you, you're building a catalog, dude. And, and any audience that will find you will definitely be a horror one. Cause we're the weirdos that are like crawling through IMDb. So I, I feel like your mark is being felt. And oh, thanks. I don't know, man. We're going to get the hashtag Billy Brent thing going. Dude. I do. You have to. Billy Renaissance. Once again, it's a great idea. I wish I, you know, would have been 10 years ago, you know, but it's gone, whatever. Well, you know, if you need PR people, we'll it's never start, too late. We'll work on your TikTok next week. We'll, we'll really get you out there branded. But dude, man, thank you for hanging out with yeah, us. Yeah, man. So much fun. And um, yeah, I, I mean it. It's, we talk about you probably too much in this house. It is a little weird now that I think about it. Yeah, we're creeps, but we're know. fans. That's true. Yeah, dude. Um, I love you, man. Thank you for hanging out and spending the time with us too. And are you still doing, are you on the PR gauntlet still? Do you have more lined up like next week or? Yeah, I think most of the gauntlet's done. I mean, you know, we had a screening on Wednesday in LA and then a screening on like Thursday in New York. And then I came back from New York today. Um, and Magnolia's had their event. So it's been, and but most of the PR kind of like junket kind of stuff, you know, like the boom, boom, boom stuff. Yeah. Uh, kind of, I think it's mostly done. Like we had three days of madness. Well, so this is nice. And I like this. It's like, it's a, you know, we get to whatever. I mean, I just hope you guys, uh, either have a good editor or edit it well, because I know I'm, <laughs> I'm just rambling all in different directions. Oh yeah. We have the best editor in town who has COVID. Yeah. So he's going to be as <laughs> sharp as ever. Right. That's but, the um, yeah. Lord of Miss rules out now, uh, VOD. So, uh, go check it out. And, uh, Brent, any other thing you want to plug for, uh, we cut you loose? No, no, no. All right. Just, well, uh, fine. Yeah. Just keep a lookout. Um, for the next one. Yeah, well, we certainly are. Yeah. And uh, we'll be happy to have you on anytime, man. All right. Well, Thanks great again, to see you guys. Dude. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Overlook Hour. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your podcatcher of choice is. And while you're there, go ahead and give us a rating and or a review, which is a very easy way for you to support this show uh, that we bring to you every week for years now, free of charge. And as always, you can find us on YouTube at The Overlook Theater, Instagram at The Overlook Theater, Facebook at The Overlook Hour, and Twitter at The Overlook Hour. Last but not least, you can send us your emails and tell us how much you like or dislike the show at overlookhour at gmail.com. And if you're nice, maybe we'll uh, read them on the show. I've been your engineer, Randy Stat. Please join me along with Clark, Russell, and Oksana again next time. Bye.